All right, give me a chance to get set up here. You'll want to turn in your outline, says walking in the kingdom. We are at the end of Matthew chapter 14. For you want to turn there in your Bibles, on your devices, Look in the outline. You have about four or five options, most of you, to find the scripture. Pick one and go there. And uh, we will read this passage from Matthew 14, starting at verse 22 to the end of the chapter. And please listen carefully as this is God's word. Speaking of Jesus, it says, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the, on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked down the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Once again, you've brought us to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son Jesus. So we ask this morning that you would give us the grace to understand what you are trying to teach us about Jesus in this text and what it means to know that and to follow him. By your spirit, open this gospel to us, help us to see Jesus, enable us to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, what do you think of Jesus Christ? What do you think of Jesus Christ? You might respond, well, I think very highly of him. But if you think about it, that really doesn't say very much. In our last presidential campaign, and I'm sure in our next presidential campaign, the candidates will say something along the lines of, uh, Jesus is inspirational. He sets a good example to follow. But as World Magazine then pointed out, they said nothing of Jesus as creator, redeemer, savior, Lord. They didn't use any of those words. Jesus does get a lot of uh, good press uh, these days, but sometimes it's not so responsible and sometimes it's not so accurate. 
Most everyone has an opinion about Jesus, more than any other religious figure. Few speak badly about him. Yet simply refraining from speaking badly about Jesus doesn't mean that a person thinks rightly about him. The crowd thins when the discussion starts to center on, you know, the two distinct natures of Christ or his redemptive missions or the demands that he puts on his disciples or his claim to be the sovereign Lord. You see, I think most people agree that Jesus is inspirational and a good example to follow. But few of those same people actually follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. And Scripture doesn't tell us about Jesus so that we could find him to be an inspiration in the pursuit of our own personal peace and affluence. He's not revealed in the Scriptures merely to give us an example of a nice way to live so that we'll feel better about ourselves. God's Word reveals Christ because apart from him, we don't have life. And apart from having a relationship with him, we can't please God. And the best way to learn about Christ is to read the Gospels. Lots of books discuss views and ideas about Jesus, but the Gospels reveal Christ. Every story, every statement, every uh, teaching unfolds some aspect of his divine and human nature, or the beauty of his character, or the faithfulness of his redemptive work, and his continuing call to follow him. Matthew sets before uh, us his kingship, which is why we called this series on Matthew, the king and his kingdom, emphasizing the sovereign rule of Jesus over all the kingdom's citizens. Gospel of Mark pictures him as the suffering servant with the theme of redemption running throughout the gospel. Luke unfolds the incarnation, setting Jesus' humanity and deity before us through his encounter with real people. And John majestically heralds him as the Son of God, forcefully calling on us to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Gospels, every revelation of Jesus Christ is a call to believe in him and to follow him as your king. And the story in our text today helps us to see this more clearly through how it reveals Jesus and how it calls us to respond to him. Stories of Christ are not just quaint tales of an inspiring mythological figure. Every story reveals Jesus as the Savior of sinners and the King of kings. So how do we respond to this revealing, this revelation of Jesus Christ? As we journey through the Gospel of Matthew, we find ourselves walking in the shoes of the disciples. We get a clearer picture of how their understanding of Christ grows with every encounter, every experience, every teaching. And we know that once the twelve began to follow Christ, we know they didn't understand everything about him. Now, earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we found the disciples in a boat with Jesus crossing the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus slept as this huge storm arose. And it must have been frightening for them because they woke Jesus up and the text says they cried out for Jesus to save them in Matthew 8. It says, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. 
And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? Now later in the gospel, we slowly see that they come to understand he's no mere man, but that he can command the wind and the seas because he created them. But it takes some time for them to sort of put the pieces together and grasp the big picture about Jesus. And although the revelation about uh, Jesus in the scriptures is complete, our understanding of the scriptures is not. So we're much like the disciples. So we make our way through life, and we go through this whole process of walking with Christ, and we grasp a little bit here and a little bit there uh, through the truth of Scripture, and we go through all the struggles and fears of life which bring that truth into our everyday world. We wrestle with questions just like the disciples did. And it's through observing the Lord's work in real life the Holy Spirit reveals Christ to us. No doubt it's clear in the Scriptures uh, just the fact that a man commanding the sea and the wind to stop, and it actually happens, plainly shouts that he's sovereign. But it takes time to really get the big picture and understand what's going on. We shouldn't rely upon our own superior mental abilities when it comes to understanding Jesus. A good mind, let alone a superior one, is not enough. The revealing work of the Holy Spirit, opening our minds to the truth of Scripture, is essential to right thinking about Jesus. And that's why we study the gospel. And that's why we want our minds exposed in the scriptures to the revelation of Christ and pray that the Holy Spirit would give us understanding so that we can see him as he is and then follow him in response. That's what we see in this story. What did the disciples learn about Jesus through this particular episode in his life? How did it affect their lives? How does it affect our lives? So what do we learn about Jesus in this otherwise very familiar story? Well, first and foremost, we see that Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is sovereign. S-O-V-E-R-E-I-G-N. First blank there. Look with me at verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Well, the fact that Jesus is Lord of the storm not only tells us he's more powerful than the storm, we talked about that in some detail back in Matthew 8. You can go back and look that up online. But it also tells us here that he puts people in the storm. He puts people through the storm. Now think of the situation here. We know the Apostle Peter is a good sailor. He knows the Sea of Galilee. He's a lifelong fisherman, yet it's a dark night with violent winds that whip up the waves. There's rough water on the sea this night. And Peter and the disciples are more than a little afraid. And unlike earlier in Matthew 8, when Jesus quieted the storm, this time Jesus isn't with them. You have to understand the context to really get what's going on. Remember the scene we just left? The 12 disciples were standing in a circle, 
uh, each holding a basket of food. And they're looking at the Lord with more food than they started with. We just had the feeding of the 5,000, and Jesus is looking back at them uh, with eyes that are saying, now do you believe? We said it was the lesson of the leftovers, and the feeding of the 5,000 was a great lesson in faith. The storm is the exam. If the feeding of the 5,000 was the lesson, the storm is the exam. Because the disciples don't just get caught in the storm. Jesus sends them into the storm. Verse 22, we read, he made the disciples get into the boat. The word made could be translated compelled, as in to compel by force or persuasion. And the picture that scripture is painting is the disciples don't want to get in the boat and go to the other side. They want to be with Jesus. He wants to be alone. So they're persuaded, even compelled by Jesus, to get in the boat and go to the other side. I just imagine he probably gave the boat a shove to get him off in the right direction. He is deliberately sending them off into the lake. And the disciples are well on their way when the storm comes up. Verse 24. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. The disciples are several miles from shore, and their boat is being beaten, literally tormented. Scripture is very graphic at this point. It says the wind was against them. That is, they're sailing straight into the wind. They had to have been scared. The Sea of Galilee lies uh, nearly 700 feet below sea level in the Jordan Rift, while the surrounding Hills rise abruptly to about 2,000 feet above sea level. So the sharp drop of nearly 3,000 feet from the top of the hills to the surface of the lake creates ideal conditions for a sudden violent storm, in which the Sea of Galilee is notorious for even to this day. And so the cooler air rushes down the slopes and strikes the surface of the lake with great force, churning uh, the water into whitecaps, creating dangerous conditions for small boats. So why are the disciples in trouble? They're in trouble because they pointed their boat in the direction the Lord told them to go. They wouldn't have been in danger if they disobeyed. It's because they're obedient to Christ. They're at great risk. The disciples are in trouble because they steered their boat into contrary winds. You could say, how could this be? What's the meaning of this? And I think the Lord is telling us that those of you who have decided to follow me as your Savior are going to be sailing your vessel into the winds of life. You're going to have trouble, and you need to obey anyways. So here are the disciples. They're battling the wind, wondering if they're going to make it to shore. Storms raging, waves are huge, sprays washing over the deck. The masts have begun to crack. You know, water is sloshing in the dark hold of their beleaguered boat. And they're probably wondering, has Jesus forgotten us? But Jesus hasn't forgotten them. Even though at that moment it looked like he had. Now Mark, in his parallel account, says that Jesus saw them. Remember, he's on top of a mountain looking down at the lake. Mark 6.48, and he saw they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And the parallel account in John says it's now dark. Now we don't know if 
Jesus saw the disciples in the midst of the lightning, or if he saw them because he's omniscient, or whatever the point is, he knew their plight, he knew their dilemma, he knew their situation, he knew exactly what they're going through. And even today in this dark age, things can be obscured by the winds of life and all of its problems, and we can feel like Jesus has forgotten us too. If this text teaches us anything, it's that he has not. He knows, he cares, he'll come to his aid, but he's going to do it in his time, not our time. Christ sees the disciples rowing helplessly, and he delays coming to them. He knows their thoughts, he knew they're wondering where he was. He chooses to let the storm beat them for a while. Finally he comes. Why does he delay? I think it's to take the disciples to the very end of their strength so they would rely fully on God and not themselves. We don't always know why God waits. But we can be sure he knows everything going on and he's ministering and caring for us and he'll never abandon us, he'll never forget us. Then verse 25 adds another dimension to the story. It says, In the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea. He comes to the disciples evidently taking the same course the boat had taken. I find that somewhat amazing because I'm pretty sure Jesus could have stilled the storm from a safe vantage point on top of the mountain. But he doesn't stay on top of the mountain. After he finishes praying, he strides down the mountain to that same point on the shore and follows them out into the sea. I think that's a very encouraging aspect of uh, Christ's humanity. He understands our situation. He feels what we feel. He walks where we walk. And so when we're being tossed about, he understands what we're going through. He experienced what the disciples were experiencing. And what a scene to keep before us. The Lord is walking across the waves, these angry waves actually serving as pavement for his feet. The disciples have been out on the water. They're rowing. And if you've ever rowed any distance, you know It's incredibly hard work. And because it's the fourth watch, they've been rowing for at least six hours, possibly as long as 12 hours. And Jesus comes to his followers in the darkest part of the night when the disciples are miserable, cold, tired, and hungry, wondering if they're going to survive, and only then does the Lord come. It's quite a contrast. Earlier in the chapter, he's stuffing them in a feast. And now he sends them off into danger where they feel real fear and to a place where it looks like they're left all alone. And if Jesus is your Savior, there will be times when he apparently will be sending you into danger in places where he seems to be absent. Don't be surprised. Don't be startled. He's sovereign. He knows what he's doing. We also have to realize here he's not simply walking on water. He's actually walking through a storm. You know, when we read about storms in the Bible, you have to know uh, the ancients knew that the sea in general, and a stormy sea in particular, is a symbol of the fact that uh, life and the world and everything around us is full of uncontrollable powers and chaos beyond our control and comprehension. And what you have here is not just Jesus walking on the water, but also walking through the storm. And don't get the idea that he's sort of slogging through. He's strolling. He's walking along in absolute power 
over all the forces of destruction, all the forces of death, all the forces of devastation that this storm represents. And if you put this together with the other story from Matthew 8, remember, we know from that uh, story, he gets up and says, peace, be still. It's really saying, be quiet and stay quiet. And the storm stops. But in this case, he's just strolling out uh, in the water. He's showing all of his sovereign power over the forces of devastation and destruction. That's what he's revealing. That's what we have to understand. Before we move on, you need to get that Jesus Christ as Lord has absolute power. The text is telling us he is completely sovereign over everything. It means there's nothing that he can't handle and there's nothing out of control. So what do we learn about Jesus? First and foremost, we see that Jesus is sovereign. Second, we see something equally important, which is that Jesus is holy. Jesus is holy, verse 25. I don't have to spell that for you. Holy. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now, if you look carefully at the text, you'll see the disciples aren't terrified until Jesus shows up. It doesn't say they're terrified of the storm. Surely they're concerned. We know from all the other gospel accounts, Jesus saw them toiling out there. They couldn't make it. They're concerned. But there's no mention of them being terrified until Jesus shows up. Why aren't they terrified uh, until Jesus shows up? Because when he shows up, he's walking on the water. You probably haven't seen that lately. And he walks on the water. He's showing that he's from somewhere else. They're in the presence of the supernatural. They're in the presence of the transcendent. They're in the presence of someone from somewhere else. And because of that, they react in terror to natural human response to the supernatural. So what does Jesus do? When he shows up, he says, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. He doesn't actually say, it is I. That's the way it's translated, because that's better English. Literally, he says four words. I am no fear. Don't be afraid. I am. It's a very unusual grammatical construction. He says, don't be afraid. Ego in me, I am. It's translated, it is I, because that makes it sound right to our ears. But it's not exactly what he says. He says, don't be afraid. I am. Now, there's another time in the Bible when somebody heard the terrifying presence before them say, I am. And the first time, it's Moses standing before a burning bush. And he heard God speak in Exodus chapter 3. Do not come near, take, off your, or take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And once Moses does that, God commissions him to go to the people of Israel and to lead them 
out of Egypt. But Moses has an important question. We read later in the chapter in Exodus 3. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, all caps, English translation of Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The first place in the scripture where the name Yahweh, which literally means I am, is revealed. So what does I am mean? Why would God call himself I am? Because he's saying, I'm not like anything else you've ever seen. I have no beginning and no end. I am. There's no I was about me. There's no I will be about me. I am. I can't change. I'm perfect. I need nothing. I'm dependent on nothing or no one. I'm the unique God, self-sufficient, the Holy One. And in the fury of the fire, Moses heard and grasped the holiness of God. And he essentially hits the deck. And now comes Jesus walking on the water. And in the fury of the water, he comes to the disciples and says, I am. And they hit the deck. They're terrified. Why? Because he's revealing himself as the transcendent one, the holy one, the supernatural God of the universe. A long time ago, there was a writer named Rudolf Otto. At the beginning of the 20th century, he wrote a book called The Idea of the Holy. And he noted that in all religions, when people get into the presence of the supernatural, they have an approach-avoidance reaction. An approach-avoidance reaction. It means on the one hand, there's an attraction. But on the other hand, there's a repulsion. On the one hand, they want to get close. But on the other hand, they're terrified to get too close. You can just see it with, uh, with children. You know, they want you to to tell you a ghost story. You know, tell me a ghost story. Let me watch that scary show on TV. And when they watch it, what do they say? Why did you let me watch that? Now I can't go to sleep. The Bible is much more profound in giving us examples of this whole approach avoidance thing. I want to be near God. I'm afraid to be near God. You have Isaiah who wants to see God. Yet at the same time, he says, woe is me, I am undone. He sees the Lord, and we read in Isaiah 6, woe is me, I am lost, I'm a man of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We long deep down to see the face of God, but as soon as we start to get close, like Moses, like Isaiah, like Peter, we say, depart from me. For I am sinful. Whenever we get near the holy, it's beautiful. But it's also traumatic. Can't live with God. Can't live without God. You can see it in other people. How many people have you known in your life that are uh, seeking God, but as soon as they start to get close, they get scared? 
Why? Because they're wondering, you know, if I give myself to him, maybe he won't come through. Maybe he'll ask me to do something I don't want to do. Maybe he'll embarrass me. What if he doesn't make all my dreams come true? What if he disappoints me? See, the solution is to see that the one that you need in the boat to take you to shore, an overwhelmingly loving person, the only one who can take you to shore is a holy person. That holy person is someone, like anyone who loves somebody, um, he's going to demand from you, demand perfection, demand purity, wants to see you change, wants to see you grow. Any real love is holy love. A love that says, I don't want to bother you, I want you to be happy just as you are, I never want you to be upset, that's not love, that's codependency. Real love intervenes and confronts and it's a holy love, and you need a holy love in your boat. You need a God who's loving, but who's holy, who will confront, who will intervene, who will say these things have to change. And you need to give up control. And that's the reason you're afraid to let him in the boat. I want him, but how can I get him and keep control? And the answer is you can't. Jesus is holy, you're not. He walks on water, you don't. So what do we learn about Jesus? First, we see Jesus is sovereign. Second, we see that Jesus is holy. And finally, we see that Jesus is the Savior. That Jesus is the Savior. Starting at verse 28. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. So we see here that Peter impulsively responds. He says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come. I don't think Peter's being arrogant. I don't think he's trying to show off here. I think his response is just instinctive. It's an act of faith. It's the opposite of fear, which him and everybody else on the boat had been expressing just a few minutes earlier. It's an act of recognition. He sees this is the Lord. And so the Lord Jesus evokes this recognition in Peter, and Peter's devoted to him and wants to come to him. His act is an act of faith. He's utterly dependent on Christ. He knows that only Christ can enable him to come. But there's one other thing you have to see here, and that's Peter's response gives us a great picture of what saving faith is. Notice as long as Peter's focus is on Jesus, he's held up. The minute his attention is shifted to his circumstances, the water and the wind and the waves, he begins to sink. Does that not teach us something about how faith works? It's not the strength of our faith that saves us. It's the object of our faith that saves us, Jesus. It's not the strength of our faith that saves us. It's Christ who saves us. And when our focus is taken off him, our faith falters. And as Peter becomes more aware of his circumstances and less aware of Christ, he begins to sink. 
And Jesus has to pull up his doubting servant with the words, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? See, if your faith is grounded in your circumstances, it will always be like Peter's faith, going up and down depending on the circumstances. But if our faith is on the proper object, the Lord Jesus Christ, it'll be constant because he's constant. He never changes. Of course, this passage also teaches us about the imperfection of faith. Faith is always imperfect this side of heaven. In this life, our faith is always mixed with doubt to a certain extent. But thankfully, it's not the quality of our faith or the quantity of our faith that saves us. It's still the object of our faith that saves us, and that's Jesus. Was Peter's faith perfect? No. Was it imperfect? Yes. Did Christ save him? Yes. Because of his faith? No. But because of his own love for Peter. Peter truly had faith in Christ, but that faith was imperfect. And the Lord Jesus, out of his love and his goodness, saves him anyways. Because Jesus is able and powerful and mighty, comes to his people in time of need. And of course, the response of the disciples right there in the boat is to fall down and worship him. They do what no good believing do would ever do to a mere man. They fall down and they worship him and acknowledge him as the Son of God. But because Jesus is the Son of God, there's one more storm he has to face. And he didn't walk through this one. He sank. And that's the final storm. Jesus doesn't walk through every storm? Absolutely not. Well, I don't remember any storm he didn't still. Well, there's one. When Christ was on the cross, he may have been thinking about this. Because what he's saying is there's one storm in which I do sink. There's one storm where the waves and the sea billows roll over me, and I won't walk over them. And I'm going under the only storm that can really kill you. It's a storm of justice. It's a storm of punishment for sin, a storm of eternal justice. And I'm going under those waves, and I'm going under those billows, and I'm going to be really cast out. It's because I sank, and the only storm that can really kill you that you're going to be able to walk with me through any other storm that ever strikes. Jesus is not only Lord, he's Savior. He's our substitute. Every other founder comes and says, do this if you want to live. Jesus comes and actually lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. And here's how you know you really understand the gospel. Here's how you know you're not just a good religious person. Do you really understand what Jesus says it means to make him your Lord and Savior? And that's the holiness of God is now your comfort. Jonathan Edwards says in one of his great books, and he wrote a lot of great books, but one of them, and I don't remember which one, he says the way to tell the difference between a Christian and a Pharisee, or a Christian and some good religious person, is this. You know, ask them about the various character qualities uh, of God. He said, everybody likes the power of God because the power of God is a benefit. I'm weak. I want the power of God. Everybody wants the mercy of God, you know, because I screw up. I make mistakes. I sin. I need forgiveness. And everybody wants the wisdom of God because I'm confused. I don't know what to do. I need wisdom. But the holiness of God, he says, yeah, I don't really need that. Because the holiness of God comes in and makes me feel wrong and guilty and condemned. And Edward says the way you really understand the gospel is that 
when the holiness of God is a comfort to you. Because you understand that he sunk in the great storm so that we can walk through all the other storms. And we will walk through every other storm. And if you're in a storm right now, and some of you are, you can look at it and say, how do I know he's with me? My goodness, if he refused to abandon you in the only storm that can really kill you, if he went under all those real waves and all those real billows uh, for you, then he's not going to abandon you now. He comes and says, I'm the Holy One, and because I'm the Holy One, you're saved. I died on the cross to completely satisfy justice. It took someone who was perfectly holy, me, the way to know you finally understand the gospel is that when he shows up with his holiness in the midst of your storm, you let him get in the boat. You let him get in the boat. You find his holiness to be a comfort. You find his sovereignty to be a comfort. After all, he's your savior. And you don't sink because he already did. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us a king. And once again, in this passage, we see your son. Lord, as we prepare to come to your table, as we confess our sins, help us to see that only you can make us holy. As we come to the table, help us to see that what Jesus has done is to provide a refuge for us from the storm, that we cannot make it to the shore without what he has done. So let us rest in him and trust in him and turn to him. And as we take the bread and take the cup, help us to live that faith. Help us to find his holiness a comfort. Help us to find his sovereignty a comfort. And help us to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Before we take the offering and have the offering song, I do have some announcements for that you are here. A couple quick reminders. If you did not get one of the Advent devotionals, we have them down here. If you didn't get one of the magazines, we have them down here. Please come and take those. Also, right after, immediately following the service, uh, before you go talk to everybody, before you go sing in the choir, we're going to meet over in that corner. I'm going to have a time to pray for John and James and Marcy before they head out to the Philippines on Wednesday. If you would like to join us for that, you may. We're going to meet like in a minute and a half right over there and uh, pray for them and send them out. So, receive God's blessing. Let's everybody stand. We've talked today about seeing Jesus. Receive God's blessing from Acts 26. Open our eyes.
so that we may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that we may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. God bless you. We'll see you next week.